0: Hi, welcome back to Private Capital Perspectives. My name is Alex Last. I'm here with Richard Perris again. Hello again, Alex. Hi, Richard. So today I'm excited about our conversation. We're, we're speaking to, I think, one of the industry leaders in the US market on the legal That's side. Right. I think it's fair to say that He's grown a market-leading practice. That's right. It's John O'Neill, who's head of the private funds group at Kirkland and & Ellis. And you're right, he's taken that practice to new heights during his time at the helm. And it was very interesting to catch up with him. We spoke a lot about technology as well. He actually started his career as a computer programmer, which I hadn't realized. And so does focus a lot on how technology might change the way that legal services are delivered in the future. So it's a great conversation and um, I hope everyone likes it.
1: Fantastic. Excited to hear it.
0: I'm here with John O'Neill. John, thanks very much for joining us today. Good morning, Rich. You trained as a computer programmer, right? Yeah. uh, You're not a lawyer.
2: That was my previous life
0: back in the late uh, 80s and
2: early 90s. I was at a startup in San Francisco backed by Venture Capital and doing programming.
0: So how did you end up? sitting here talking to me about investment funds.
2: (laughs) Um, It was the only thing I wanted to do was be a programmer. From the time I was 10, I was uh, very passionate about Steve Jobs and Apple and the explosion of the tech community out west. But once I ultimately got out there and uh, I sat down behind a computer and programmed every day and had very little interaction with other human beings... Uh, I realized it wasn't something that I was passionate about and I could do for a long time. So at that point, I had to make a pivot and uh, decided to go to law school. I was thinking about law school or business school, and I thought law school gave me the optionality to either go down the business path or to be a lawyer.
0: And did you join Kirkland right after that?
2: Yeah, just joined Kirkland right out of school. And... We had an open assignment system uh, at the time, which was ideal for me because from the time I was 10 until I was 24, I was so certain that I wanted to be an engineer or a programmer. And when I got into the day-to-day of what it was like, it wasn't uh, interesting to me. Yeah. And so I didn't want to make that kind of mistake again. And so that open assignment system that allowed me to try debt finance and m and and investment funds try all of these different areas until I found something that I love to do and it wasn't uh it was probably about a year year and a half into being at Kirkland that I had my first funds project and I was hooked immediately absolutely loved it what was it about funds that got um, you going I think it attracts a lot of people because it's very much about building and growing, bringing people together. You're you're working with your clients, clients, the investors uh, yeah. to bring them into the fund. They all have the same objective: to raise the capital to allow the uh, sponsors to go out and execute on their investment thesis. Being in an environment where you're not fighting, you know, not a litigator and fighting every day, but really trying to bring people together. And when you actually raise the fund, you're helping to grow that business. And, yeah. and that was exciting. And so to watch the industry develop over the last sure. 25 years has been really exciting because not only are they just forming their funds, but they're expanding the lines of business that they operate in, their geographical expansions, the asset management m M&A. and I mean, there's so many exciting things about the space.
0: And how did you find the transition from programming <laughs> to, to legal work with there transferable skills there? Is that something that, is it a natural jump?
2: or Oddly, I see it that way because when I would program, If there's a piece of code that was written wrong, it can, you know, that's a bug that's out there that you have to find. Yeah. And in the same way, I I would look at the partnership agreements in that way. They're kind of living, breathing documents that are out there for 10, 15, 20 years. They're so interconnected with one another. You change a definition over here and it impacts, you know, 10 other spaces within the agreement, yeah, the way that my mind operated when I was programming actually operates the same way when I'm drafting uh, partnership agreements. So that was the, like the intellectual rigor of the legal work. But then you had the other side of it where you had the connectivity with the client, the long-term relationship with them. And the thing that was really missing for me as a programmer, and, and I found it with funds.
0: Yeah, with funds, yeah. yeah. Do you ever look back and think, well, this has been a great industry to be in, but tech might have been pretty cool as well. Like, <laughs> well, of course, yeah. yeah. I mean, given what's happened, yeah, it was I, I could um, be interviewing Steve Jobs right now, but <laughs> I'm not. I'm interviewing I mean, you've been a very successful <laughs> person, but you know, there's a whole other level out there in tech, right?
2: Yeah, the one thing that I talk to associates all the time is about following your passion and your purpose. Yeah. I mean, I knew at that time because I had followed the tech industry from the seventies, the eighties, you know, I knew I was in in ground zero of the Silicon Valley, you know, growing up and, and I was going to pivot away from that. I had gotten to where I wanted to get to very early in my career. Again, I wasn't passionate about it. And I just don't think you can be great at something. If you're not passionate about it, you can't fake it for 30 years. So I made that kind of intentional pivot and, and always would tell myself, don't follow the money, don't follow I- anything but like truly what you're passionate about. And, and that can be difficult to um, assess. I think I was a very good program, so I got a lot of praise for it. And mm-hmm. I could listen to those platitudes and, and just say, oh, I'm, I must be good at this, I should follow it. And I'm in the center of this booming industry but aren't a lot of self-reflection it was just something i wasn't passionate about and and i knew i had to be patient and wait until i found that yeah, yeah and i was fortunate because i truly found it with funds and i would say at the time in the investment we we had fewer than 10 lawyers in the investment fund space at kirkland yeah and we've got 5 to 600 now yeah and so it's huge now but at the time it was a very small practice but i loved it so much i didn't worry about like where the end goal was. If that was something that I could come in each day and do that type of work, I was going to be happy with it. And if there wasn't a long-term future in it, uh, I was okay with that because I was happy. I was learning. There was a lot of creativity to it. And so, you know, I stuck it out.
0: The growth of the funds team, which you just mentioned, has been pretty phenomenal under your leadership, actually. And and so... When, for you, did that really take off? When did you actually make the switch to funds? What was, which year was that? The
2: That was probably in 2001, 2002. Yeah. And then in 2006, I moved from Chicago to New York. Yeah. And Andrew Wright was one of the first guys that um, I had been hunting down to hire him. And he finally agreed to, to join me. And we really started to build up the practice in New yeah. York. And so we went from just a few lawyers here to 150 or so. And then around 2015, the firm asked me to take over globally.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And with the help of a lot of like great partners around the globe, we were able to kind of really kind of extend that expansion uh, to other
0: geographies outside yeah. of New York. Yeah, which has been phenomenal. I mean, wh- what do you think it was... Obviously, luck's going to play a big of a part, but but what what were the what were the non lucky pieces that actually drove that growth?
2: Well, I mean, we, we had a vision plan for yeah. that that we had drafted out, and I think that's important to really kind of think through. Of course, we were lucky, but we were smart enough to know we were lucky, yeah, and and to do something with that. Uh, but there was a lot of I actually had traveled. Over 400,000 miles um, meeting with all the partners and all the associates um, across the globe in uh, 2015 Mm -hmm. to talk about what our philosophy was for our growth where our focus should be in uh, industry verticals that we wanted to focus on on different geographies where we wanted to bring people on why were we expanding to those geographies was it the talent play was it to gain market share and uh, just making sure that everybody was Rowing in the same direction. I mean, I really believe that we have such collaboration across the platform. It's it's not kind of a collection of solo practices, but it's really one global group that operates together. And we had such success with that, that I think for those who might have question whether it was going to be successful or not. Once they saw how successful that, that growth and the number of clients that were moving over to the platform, people jumped on board pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. There must have been challenges along the way. You, you hired a lot of ex, you know, lateral hired partners. That was what drove, I think, quite a bit of the growth. Yeah. And there were quite a few sort of high profile yeah you know, defections to Kirkland. Was that a challenge to maintain that collaborative kind of spirit when you've got new people coming in at quite a senior level, you know, with their own sort of practice bolting on? One
2: of the reasons that um, people were comfortable that the platform was going to be that way I always call him, uh, Andrew Wright the Michael Jordan of the Fund Formation area. Right. And he was junior to me, but I was bringing him in. I was gonna say,
0: what does that make you?
2: Oh, <laughs> I'm happy to be Scotty Pippen, <laughs> I'm having I wanted to surround myself with talent, with the talent of Erica Pertou and Jordan Murray and Daniel LeVon Krein and Chris Bronick and, yeah. and uh, Jeff Kaplan. I mean, just amazing partners that either organically grew up here, came over, I think in leading by example that you bring really talented people around you and they see that, you know, that's the kind of direction to success. Yeah. Once people got here, I think that the move wasn't that Kirkland was necessarily a better law firm or we had smarter lawyers. I mean, there's fantastic lawyers at fantastic firms all over the place, but this is very much a t- team sport. This isn't kind of individual sport you need to have the breadth and depth of the team. The world of investment funds has gotten so complicated. There's so many regulatory developments, tax developments, the investors after 2008 and the amount of diligence that they're doing, you know, on the, the PE shops and, and trying to keep pace with that. It's not something that an individual can can do themselves. Uh, you can't have, you know. Two partners and a dog sure. and call yourself fun scrape. You really need to have that breadth and depth. And so I think that the growth started to feed just more growth. You know, people were at fantastic firms, but their platforms weren't growing at the pace that the industry was growing. Yeah, sure. You know, we weren't growing just for growing sake. We were watching the industry grow and we were trying to keep pace with where the industry was going. Our clients no longer were kind of going out to raise capital every few years in a cyclical basis, but they were out there 24 seven, constantly raising capital, constantly in front of their funds, constantly inventing new strategies, continuation funds, the explosion of the secondaries market. I think that that's where, Partners at other firms would recognize the investment that we're making into this platform, and it was a platform that they wanted to be on to really elevate their game.
0: How's 2022 looking so far market-wise? Amazing. Amazing. Like
2: really a shocker. you went into 2020 with the pandemic and, and the kind of cl- the global financial situation the way it was and there's a lot of question marks how do you raise capital? how do you try cases? How do you close deals mm-hmm. um, when everybody's working from home? And yet we all found that it was this remarkable period of activity uh, in the private equity space. 2021 came around and again, record levels, just amazing, level of activity, amazing level of fundraising. And you thought there's got to be some pause to this. But as we've gotten through the first half of 2022, we're on pace for another record year. And for myself, I think that the macro issue that's driving that is all of the money that's moving from the public markets into alternative assets. In 2018, we had three trillion of assets in private equity, and about seven trillion in um, alternatives. And they had a five-year prediction that it would hit five trillion in private equity and 13 trillion in uh, alternatives. And we've hit that already; mm-hmm. only four years into that prediction. Now the prediction is in the next five years that we're going to get to 10 trillion in private equity and 26 trillion in alternative assets. That is just phenomenal growth. In five phenomenal. years? In five years. It's just really remarkable.
0: So th- you think that fundraising will be another record year this year? The yeah. Big-
2: I think you'll have pockets where there's some segments of the industry will be down. Mm-hmm. But overall, I think that it's going to be, again, a- another very active year.
0: Yeah. Because normally you get the opposite effect, right? If the equity markets are down a newer pension fund who has a certain allocation to alternatives, a certain allocation to equities, you'll, the denominator effect makes you pull back from alternatives. But I guess you're saying that they're increasing their allocation to alternatives. That must be the the driving force behind it.
2: I think there's a much more active secondaries market as well. Mm-hmm. So when we saw this in 2008, that was the first time where, you had that denominator effect with the public valuations going down and private equity valuations not going down as much. Yeah, There was so much capital raised in the secondary market over the last five years that um, I think the first half of the year, the secondary activity has been a record year. Yeah, Investors are, are more apt at rebalancing their portfolios. The late 2022, the 2023 vintage funds, those are the ones that they want to get into. So Mm -hmm. they're able to package up vintages of uh, their holdings and the alternatives right now, sell those off into the secondaries market, which is a very active market. I think the liquidity discount that was out there 10, 20 years ago doesn't have the same drag on alternatives that it did. I think there's, again, very active yeah. secondary's market.
0: It's interesting. To, it definitely is, right? I mean, it's it's sort of exponentially growing, the, the secondaries market. Will that have an impact on alternative assets as a whole? You know, the way that people structure funds, the terms that we have, like will it, for example, lead to more standardization of terms? Will the secondary's market become more and more? There'll be pressure for it to become more liquid. And you would expect that, you know, the market as a whole has to respond to that to sort of provide that additional sort of liquidity. Yeah,
2: and some of that we're seeing with the continuation
0: funds. Yeah.
2: The selling of your, you know, best portfolio companies to yourself so you can hold yeah. on to these have much longer uh, time horizons, give some ap- optionality to the LPs to get out those that want to. And for those that have the longer time horizons, allow them to continue to ride along with those great portfolio companies. Yeah, And so all of that, acta- and we saw that again, back in 2008, but it was really for a lot of those portfolio companies that were having the most trouble getting through that time yeah. and kind of resetting the economics around those portfolio companies so you had real professional management to see that that portfolio company through to its harvest yeah and now that's been flipped to all of this activity around continuation funds. Yeah. So whether it's a denominator effect in all the capital that's being deployed in, in that, the capital that's being deployed in continuation funds, the other really interesting point about continuation funds, it's all private capital that's already been raised. Mm-hmm. So it's if the capital market's shut down or slow down, it's not impacting those deals in the same way that you saw a real slowdown and more of a correlation with the public markets back in 2008 than you're seeing today. Right. That's interesting.
0: At some point, the valuations have to adjust, right? I mean, you would expect. (laughs) And the private valuations come down. It'll be interesting to see what happens at that point.
2: Yeah, I, I think there's the pacing of these transactions might slow down from really really quick and the things that we were seeing in 2021 mm-hmm. just a bit more normalized yeah. but they're still getting done yeah and we're still seeing a lot of activity i looked at a stat maybe a month ago i think we had 71 continuation active continuation funds
0: 71
2: going on, going on right now across our platform
0: is that 71 unique clients or just 71 funds or
2: uh 71 unique transactions around either a single asset deal or a multi-asset deals it's a lot. Yeah, lots of volu- volume around that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Wow. All right, let's talk about the future. All right. You've been an advocate of use of technology, looking forward to like changing how legal services are, are provided. Right. You've recently launched, I think, a, a platform called Funded. Yeah. A, an online automated subscription process. How's that going? <laughs> it's fantastic. I had come from the tech world. Yeah.
2: When I first got into law. It was at a time where you couldn't attach documents to emails, people were using Word Perfect, not even Excel to kind of track things. There weren't any databases built. Uh, there was just a lot of kind of inefficient human process added to the delivery of legal services. And I thought that bringing efficiency, I don't think there's any good business plan that relies on inefficiencies. Those inefficiencies will be solved by somebody. I'd rather be the group that solves that. And number two, it's just the human error that can come with it. I think if you set up the proper systems through the use of technology, you can kind of minimize the risk. We're dealing with so much capital here. We're dealing with so much paperwork. Um, the more that we can minimize the errors that might might happen, it's just better for everybody. It's a, a costly endeavor to undertake. You can build some kind of cheap, clunky software solutions and claim that you've got something that's going to deliver efficiencies. But it's hard to deliver that in eloquent and uh, a streamlined and in a way that really attracts people to using the system. Do
0: you think law firms are the right place to be doing this, given that, I mean, it just occurred to me as you're talking about inefficiencies, actually, the law firm business model is kind of modeled on ineffic- because the more time you take to do something- the more you can charge for it, So it's an interesting, you know, and and obviously that's not really how lawyers think about life. You know, they they wanna do things in an efficient way, but you know, at the core, you know, you're charging for time. So there's no huge driver from from a law firm's perspective uh, to to cut down the time it takes to do stuff. And is that why law firms tend to historically at least uh, be slow to adopt these kind of technologies or to develop them in-house themselves?
2: I think that this is happening all around us and it has for decades. Again, when I came into law, you couldn't attach documents to emails. So I, I really spent a lot of time in my very first year or two stuffing FedEx envelopes and yeah. UPS yeah. envelopes to make sure that we got all the change pages out to prospective investors. Uh, today, you can just you know, drop that to a portal, put it up on interlinks. Um, there, are, there are software solutions out there all over the place that are bringing efficiencies.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. When I did M&A coming right out of school, you know, I would have to fly to some location, sit in a room, write a lot of notes as I reviewed the diligence materials for this company that, you know, maybe my client's thinking to, to acquire. Then I can fly back, write it up, and it would take a week or two to do a diligence memo. And then interlinks came along an empty box in the sky and you were able to put all the materials there, sit at your desk and gain access to it. And so those efficiencies have been happening all around us. And then th- there's some obvious kind of pressure points like the subscription process. Here, we've done hundreds of thousands of subscriptions, and we haven't had a single legal issue litigated or tried around it. It looks like a process that's overlawyered. Mm-hmm. And again, you have the same outcome here. You're trying to find a way for the investors to decide that they want to come in. Is there a, an easier way, a more efficient way, a way that kind of protects against making sure that there's no regulatory errors, making sure that there's, you know, not missed boxes, checked, et cetera. Technology is perfect for that, Mm -hmm. but it's difficult. The issue with like legal tech and fintech is that you can find excellent programmers that are out there, engineers that, that can code really, really well, but they don't know that area of expertise, like 18 levels deep they can sit and talk with a partner for you know a few hours and get a general understanding and the software usually falls short because they don't have that combination so when you bring that in house we've spent thousands of hours sitting with the programmers to design something that was like just eloquent you know intuitive the idea was that a thirteen-year-old could sit down and like fill it out without very much instruction, and and get it right. I don't want thirteen-year-olds subscribing to funds.
0: But I think the, yeah. there are some regulatory restrictions on that <laughs> right. one, but yeah, but that should was be one of the point. questions in funded actually. <laughs> right. Are you eighteen?
2: <laughs> um, that's what you want,
0: you know, something that
2: that was easy, and then it, it was recognizable. And so the next time that the investor comes back, it's like, oh, welcome back, John. Yeah here's how you filled everything out last time. Is it all still true? Yes. What would you like to do? I'd like to subscribe to this fund. Yeah. And so in a very, you know, within minutes, you're able to fill it out, fill it out correctly. You can't, submit your subscriptions if it's not filled out correctly, just like you can't buy something from Amazon without putting your zip code in there. You can't put your credit card in wrong. And it knows each time that you're coming back who you are, what your answers are. Those same solutions are all around us. I had written a white paper on this in 2006, and that was a time when it was just way, I, I think with technology, you have to wait until all of the constituents in that universe are comfortable enough with technology. And at that time, there were a lot of investors that were out there that had an issue with even sending in a fax, much less like filling out something online or signing a document online and feeling comfortable with that. I think once we got to the iPad being introduced, the iPhone, the iPad, when people started buying things on eBay and on Amazon and when they're filling out their taxes online, when their everyday personal lives are so intertwined with their technology, at that point they're also comfortable seeing that technology at work. And so within the last few years, I'd say around 2017, 2018, you really saw all the constituents, all of the different types of investors that are out there, the lawyers, the advisors, all being comfortable with this information being online, yeah. and that's when we really made uh, started to make an investment into, funded.
0: And how long did it take to develop that platform for the subscription process, sort of from start to finish? You're
2: never finished.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <with that>. But <laughs> start um, to wherever yeah. you are. I
2: mean, a good three years uh, of development, and we're really just rolling it out now, for wide use. Yeah. Uh, now, we've raised $125 billion of capital on it. We have something like 15,000 investors that um, have their profiles, like aren't funded. So the beta testing was ext- very extensive, a good three years to, to really get it to yeah. the point where yeah. it was ready for wide use. It's a,
0: it's a big investment then. I mean, Huge. The, yeah.
2: And I think that's what comes with scale. Like by having a group the size that we do, we're able to, as a firm, make the investments into those technological solutions. Yeah.
0: So is that now going to be the default means of subscribing to a fund if Kirkland are there? Is, is that what yeah. you're finding, that people yeah. are just sort of adopting it and there's, there's no pushback? Yeah, push
2: and, and, and we really went out of our way. We didn't want this to be – we went to a number of firms that represent a lot of the LPs in the community and we wanted their comments um, before we rolled this out. We wanted to take their feedback. We wanted to make this a real solution for the industry and not something that um, was like a gotcha or some kind of click through that there's some hidden language in. Just make it a really easy process. The the tough stuff's in the side letters and the LPA. This is when everybody's like ready to go. We call it a closing software, Mm -hmm. not just the subscription, because it really allows the client to just look at a dashboard, take a look at all the investors that it has, where they are in filling out their subscriptions, whether they want to close on them. And it just really puts the power in the, the hands of the client as opposed to so much um, internally at the law firms. Yeah, just
0: for the benefit of those who are listening and don't know what we're talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I mean, What it actually does is basically as an alternative to, you know, normally when you subscribe for a private equity fund, you have a 100-page document where you're answering a bunch of questions about your regulatory status, uh, making a bunch of representations that you're, you know, legally entitled to be in the fund and filling out all, the, obviously, the details of how much you want to invest and in, et cetera, et cetera. This automates that whole thing, so it sort of instead of actually having to fill that out and go through a document, you are going to an online portal and, and you're answering questions that are smart in the sense that if you answer one question in a certain way, it won't let you answer another question that will be contradictory to that and, and so on and so forth. So it simplifies that whole process. And then, of course, there's the, the signature itself, which is now done through something that's akin to DocuSign, which everyone, again, is becoming quite familiar with and comfortable yeah. with now. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Yeah. exactly. DocuSign is a great example. I mean, that's, it brought a solution to, you know, again, 20 years ago, I would go to a closing for an M&A deal, and we'd all fly to the same location, set up a table from, you know, where somebody would walk around and yeah. sign all these documents. And and now people are really comfortable with DocuSign. The solutions are happening all I miss those us. so many. Stuff. I really do. <laughs>
0: right. You got to travel somewhere. Right. It was, it was kind of easy because all the work was done. Everyone's happy. The deal's yeah. closing. You know, you, you know, if you're just exchanging emails, it's not quite the same, is it?
2: <laughs> no, it's not. It's
0: not. Maybe um, people will still do the ceremonial. ceremonial dinners, cetera. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, a bit like ringing the bell at Wall Street or whatever. Like You, yeah. you don't need to do it, but you'll do it anyway.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I think the other thing is you have this generation, the, the Gen Zs, the millennials that are coming up that really were raised around technology. So to them, it's very familiar. It was the same. Like when I came from a technological background mm-hmm. and I came into law, I just felt it was really antiquated. Because I had grown up around computers, but I was in the minority in growing up around computers at that time. And it was still a lot of like machine language, basics, C++, things like that, you know, not the kind of sexy internet type of programming that you see uh, today.
0: Did the programmer and John O'Neill sort of get involved in the funding development of, in the weeds of the code? Like, were you tempted to go back to your roots? No, no, no. no. <laughs> uh, technology moves really, really <laughs> right. quickly. Yeah. And so um,
2: quite quickly, you you are, if you're not in it, yeah, still. in the are just- uh,
0: Probably quite different to the uh, late yeah, 80s at this point. Yeah, right? absolutely, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Congrats on that platform. That sounds quite exciting. And do you see that now? Developing to cover other areas? Like, is this presumably you've had a team that, that yeah. worked for three years on this? Are they working on other stuff? Yeah, there's
2: a constant examination of the way that you're del- delivering legal services and can you find ways to deliver that a higher quality of service in a more efficient way? That's an excellent model to go after. And I think that there are other areas. We have a side letter compendium. So at the end of a fundraise, you have an MFN process where you share the side letters to all the various investors, all the side letter provisions to the various investors. That can be a time-consuming, tedious process. We've automated that, yeah. I think, to the delight of a lot of junior yeah. associates that otherwise have to go through that process. I think, again, just the subscription process, the amount of time that I had spent 25 years ago stuffing envelopes, opening, you know, FedExes, flipping through the pages to make sure everything was checked properly, trying to catalog that over and over again, really inefficient and not the best use of my legal education. And I don't think it got me, you know, any smarter or more ready to like start drafting LPAs. Mm -hmm. I want to find a platform that finds the highest best use for junior associates to make the learning curve uh, as steep as possible.
0: But going back to the dollars and cents and the charging for time, obviously all that time now doesn't need to be spent doing that stuff. So if you look forward five years and we've automated MFN processes, we've automated subscription documents, we've automated LPAs to a certain extent, whatever we can do. Do you see the charging model changing to reflect more of the value add that lawyers bring or will the Staffing change, so you'll have fewer sort of elite lawyers doing these deals because they can be leveraged by all this technology. And looking forward in five to yeah, ten years, I, I, how I, what impact will this have?
2: I think there will be some combination of all of that. Yeah, I think it it can be a red herring to worry too much about that. Uh, I go back to my example of doing diligence in M&A deals in the late 90s. And it would take me two weeks to do those deals. Yeah, I had looked at this in 2013. The average associate hours, let's say it was 2,000 hours for the average associate in the late 90s and the early 2000s. All of this technology advancement that we saw in the first 10 years of the 2000s, you know, the email, being able to attach documents, you have interlinks, you have... The average associate hours in 2011, I, the kind of core set that I was looking at, again was still 2,000. So their their, yeah. their time was just moved to again higher, better uses. Right. Maybe instead of doing one deal, they're able to do three deals. Got it. Yeah. Um, maybe they're doing two deals and they're doing a little bit of something else. And so I don't worry too much about where that pricing, what it's going to do, the pricing model, what it's going to, I mean, right now, there's just a war for talent that's out there. There's not enough people that are steeped into alternative assets and private equity in the legal space to even kind of worry about, you know, what that's going to do to the pricing. If you go back to the, the statement I was making about, we're at $5 trillion of assets in private equity today, and $13 trillion of in alternatives. And that's going to double to $10 trillion and $26 trillion in the next five years. The f- inflow of capital into this alternative asset space is going to keep a lot of people really busy, you know, for the foreseeable yeah. future. Because
0: you don't currently charge for funded or anything like that, right? No. A, a, yeah. you, you don't view it as something that you're going to sell out to third parties or monetize in any way. It's, it's just supportive of the, the core it's, legal work.
2: Yeah, it's supportive. The response has been phenomenal from the clients, from the investors, they're just, they're like, wow, like unbelievable that I'm able to get through and subscribe to a fund within minutes. Yeah, And it's perfect. And it's perfect record keeping that can always go back and find exactly what they need mm-hmm. because it's right there at their disposal. And so the response has been overwhelming. I mean, we thought that this was just going to bring efficiencies and really take something that was time consuming and burdensome for junior associates off their plate again so they can get up the learning curve more mm-hmm. quickly to drafting lpas to negotiating with uh investors and uh, drafting side letters you know why they came into this field make it a more attractive field but the response has been, you know, so overwhelming with that. And there's so many other areas, whether it's the NDAs, the transfers, other things of that nature. Yeah, that do you we think the bring.
0: secondaries, might we, we touched on the, the yeah. explosion in secondaries, you know, is, is that something where you see an opportunity for technology to help? I mean, yeah. there are platforms out there. That have you know tried to introduce sort of you know automated transfer processes is difficult with private funds because they're obviously all bespoke. Yeah, you need consent for the transfer, etc., etc., etc. So that's something you're looking at as an area that might benefit from tech.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. We have thousands of transfers uh, yeah. that go on on our platform every year, tens, probably tens of thousands. Yeah, it's again a, an area where there's so much high quality work. It, it's work that needs to be done, but there's so much other work that is more interesting to the associates that they would rather be working on than some of those projects. And so if you can find the technological solutions to it, it's hard for us to go out and acquire something because again, it's a lot of the legal tech that's out there, the kind of disruptive legal tech doesn't have enough time and attention from experts in that area to really make it more efficient. It sounds good. It sounds like it might be beneficial, but a lot of times it adds processes. It's kind of slow to understand and adopt and it's kind of clunky. You know, if you can develop it internally with partners and associates that are, you know, steeped in that work, you can just have a much better product and really, capture the upside of what legal tech has to offer.
0: I mean, you presumably now have a team of software engineers who are pretty savvy on investment funds as well, right? That's quite valuable, I, I imagine, going forward.
2: It's amazing. And the more that I have looked at it in that way, this has been a lot more costly, a lot more time consuming than you would even if you're really trying to kind of plan it out, you just don't. It's like, if you're going to buy a house, they're always Mm -hmm. like double your budget, triple your budget. It's just going to take longer. It's going to be more expensive. Like all of those things are true, whether you're building a home or building software, but now that they've done it and they've done it so well, and we're moving on to version 2.0 of this. And we're thinking about some of those other product lines that we can roll into we wanted to make sure that the architecture of this software could be added onto. Yeah. And so, some of those other solutions like transfers, like NDAs, you're not kind of going out there and building brand new architecture for that. Yeah. It's something that, that fits onto what we've already built.
0: Yeah. Have you looked at any of the sort of artificial intelligence, machine learning software that's out there? Is that something that you might? That's taken to a whole new level in terms of like trying to replace the actual legal work, the drafting, yeah. you know, the marking up, all that kind yeah. of stuff.
2: Because I've got a, a, like an interest in technology anyway, I've followed this for a long time. And I was actually at the uh, Milken Institute, I think it was 2017 or 18, yeah. with a panel on AI, that uh, the moderator was Robert Smith from Vista, and they had John Thompson from Microsoft, Mark Weinberg from EY, somebody from eBay and, and Goldman Sachs, and they were talking about AI. And they're like, if your company is not focused on AI, it's dead, and you don't even know it. Yeah, I mean, that's where most of the world is mm-hmm. right now. The legal industry is is behind on that. But there's a lot of advancement that's out there. I don't think that there's anything magical about the legal industry that would seal it off from those types of pressures. I mean, I think that if you're scared of the developments in AI or in technology, you're just in a bad place right now. Like I would never bet against technology. I'm excited for it. I would love to be a junior associate right now coming into the legal field because I think the advancements that you're going to see in technology as it intersects with the delivery of legal services will be like something we've never seen before over the next 10 years. And for those firms that are leaning into those advancements, they're going to make real leaps and bounds over others that are trying to, you know, fend it off.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the dog pound (laughs) (laughs) because... I don't know when we last spoke about the dog pound, but I, I always found it a fascinating thing. So to, how's that go? Because that's not a big deal, right? This is obviously outside of your legal Where yeah. You have like this. Tell me the story. Yeah. So <laughs> Hugh Jackman's involved, so it's exciting. Yeah. You know?
2: The I don't know, seven, eight years ago, there was a group of us that would get up every morning. We'd work out at 545. Hugh Jackman yeah. would bring his dog. And so they call it, started calling us the dog pound. And we would rent space at different gyms. I don't even know how we all got together. But and how do the, you know Hugh
0: Jackman actually? It was the president of New
2: York Stock Exchange. <laughs> yeah. uh, Nigel Barker was right. in there, a couple Olympic swimmers, yeah. and Hugh Jackman and myself, and a few others. And we would just all get together. It was almost like we were in high school again. Yeah. You get up early, you go work out. We really didn't talk about our professions. Yeah. Uh, but we just had a great time. Uh, people would want to join our group, and we just wanted to keep it kind of exclusive to us. Yeah. So in each gym, they would kick us out and we'd have to go rent some space, a new gym. And so finally I said, listen, why don't we pull our money together and open our own gym? Right. so we did that. We opened it in Tribeca. Uh, I think it was in 2016. Uh, somehow it just became wildly popular. I mean, it uh, really attracted quite a crowd of influencers. Um, I think right at that time, social media was really exploding. And yeah. A lot of the influencers that were coming to the gym were also pretty influential on social media. And then maybe in 2018 or 19, we opened on the West Coast and West Hollywood. Yeah, And then COVID happened and everything was shut down, but we pivoted online. And I was just uh, talking with some of the management there a few months ago, and they had said during COVID, we had 6 billion impressions on social media in the mm-hmm. two-year period of COVID. it was really remarkable. Six
0: billion, Just wow. incredible. don't know how many a day that would be, but that's quite a lot of <laughs> day, a, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know,
2: we moved to online. We've got a pop-up that's happening at the World Cup in Qatar. Oh, cool. Uh, towards the end of the year. And then uh, some plans for some expansion around it. But yeah, it's, it's just, it's a fun side investment and in something that's been you know, exciting to be a part yeah, of. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's good to have that stuff, like, you know, on the side, right, to <laughs> right, <laughs> keep life interesting. Yeah, right. yeah. Is there anything else? you? I mean, you, you've been involved in some charities and campaigning work, I think, over the years. Or? I just feel very fortunate yeah. in, in the way
2: things have worked out, and I think it's important to pay that forward. And so, you know, I try to find ways to give back to the community here in New York City on a national basis and on an international basis. Yeah outside of the legal space, but also the pro bono work. Yeah. As a group, the investment funds group at Kirkland, we commit every year to have 100% participation in our pro bono programs. And, and we've done that every year for six or seven years now.
0: Cool. What kind of pro bono work do the funds always do? Then?
2: Um, sometimes it's raising capital. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's, uh, I mean, we're working on some 501c3s that right. are raising capital to help out and different areas around the world, built some schools, built some hospitals. Others, you know, unrelated to the investment fund space, but election protection, that's always a popular one. There's so much activity, you know, around uh, the election cycles um, that it creates a a lot of interest in uh, younger associates and and participating in that. um, Just a really robust program. And uh, we make sure that people understand that that's as much – a part of our obligations to give back to the communities that we live in and we work in, yeah. as it is, you know, just to the billable hours that we, you know, yeah. put down for our clients.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Okay, John. Well, I, I think I was taking too much of your time already, so I think we're going to have to wrap this up. But this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks well, thank so you much so much, much for making the time. It's been yeah. really great. I appreciate
2: the opportunity to speak with you, Richard.
0: Cheers, John. Thanks. Thanks.